turn to this in just a minute to the guys we have carrying. Get myself set up over here. Exodus chapter 19 and then chapter 20. So we started in the Bible going through this book of Exodus. It's going to take us quite a while to get through it, and it's because it's a lot of verses in here. Uh, as I start this morning, uh, sometimes we need to look at our attitudes. And here's an attitude from a cow. <laughs> attitude from a cow. What is the attitude from a cow? Don't cry over spilled milk. <laughs> sad, sad. How about this one? Wake up in a happy mood. Okay, pathetic, I know. Well, the Bible's not pathetic, it's good for all of us. And uh, let's go to Exodus chapter 19. Now, to review, just for a minute, last chapter, last, last Sunday, in chapter 19, we covered verses 1 through 7. And now we're going to go to chapter 19, verses 9 through 25. Here's a summary of this chapter. The chapter of this part of the scripture, chapter 19, verses 9 through 25, is about God saying, I'm going to come down to the mountain. And the mountain is, of course, Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is in a desert. And if you've ever seen pictures of Mount Sinai, it kind of looks like this. It's very, very intimidating. And at this mountain, I'll just put a tent here. The Hebrew people are camping at the base of the mount. And God says, I'm going to come down. God will come down to the mount. And when he does, there'll be all kind of supernatural things like lightning and thunder and fire and smoke and all these kind of spectacular things because God showed up. Now, when I tell you that, that's what the scriptures say. But you want to be careful about applying the fact that God would show up at Mount Sinai and all these supernatural things took place. The caution is that sometimes people say, well, that's in the Bible. And when God shows up in my life, we'll see these kind of things too. Not true. Not true. However, the only thing that is true about that when God shows up in someone's life is that there's a good change. Yeah. There's a radical change in that person's life from evil, wickedness, to something very different. He is humbled. Uh, the prime example of that would be the Apostle Paul. Before he became the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9, when there's a light from heaven and a voice, and you can read that chapter to talk about when God shows up, there's a radical change. So don't look for the spectacular signs, the thunder, the lightning, the fire. Look, don't look for those kind of things. Normally that would not happen to you, but something will happen to you for sure when the Lord shows up in your life. And so the Lord will come down. He'll come down on the third day. They've been traveling for, for three months from the crossing of the Red Sea. It's taking them three months to get to this point. And then he says, on the third day where you are stopped, where you are settled, on the third day in the morning, then... I'm going to come down from the mountain or to the mountain and so get ready for that and he prepares them for his coming uh, to the mountain he's going to give them something god's going to come down and give them something he's going to give two men something uh, the two men are moses and aaron now aaron doesn't go to the top but they will go up the people the hebrews will stay down here they cannot go further up. They cannot touch the mountain. They have a limitation as to how far they can go. But Aaron will come up and Moses will come up. And so that's what you find in this, in this chapter. And uh, he will establish a covenant with them. 
a covenant. Here's another word I gotta write down. Covenant. Covenant. What would you describe as covenant in modern terms? You could say it is like uh, an agreement. You can say it's like a contract. So whenever you buy a car, if you don't pay cash for it, which is rare, you sign a contract with the, the loaner, the bank, and you owe the bank so much money per month until the debt is paid off, plus the interest. Uh, you buy a house, you have a mortgage, you sign a contract. It's like a covenant. The difference between that kind of a covenant or contract and this one here is that when God says, okay, this is what I want you to do, then all they need to do, they don't have to agree to it. They just got to do what it says. The difference between this covenant, this contract between God and his people, is that God is, God is the superior, and we are the inferior. So the Hebrews do not negotiate with God about these these dictates these rules these laws that he would give to them so the difference is that god the superior tells his people the hebrews i want you to do this i want you to be this way they don't say but i don't like this way they don't say to god um let's have a referendum and let's let's vote against this commandment they don't do that because they don't have that authority god is the authority he's the superior and he goes on to say, I'm going to deliver you from Egypt. I'm the all-powerful one. You needed my help. If it wasn't for me, you are goners. So he's telling them, I'm your superior. You're the inferior. Now, don't be offended by that. People think, well, if I'm not the same as everybody else, I'm inferior. Here's the fact. You are. <laughs> I mean, look, you have the you have some Marines over here today. I'm glad to have you both today. Uh, of all the branches... I'm prejudiced toward the Marine Corps. My father-in-law was a Marine, retired as a Marine, my son-in-law, uh, eight years the Marine, Marines over at K-Bay, and my brother-in-law in Michigan, he went to the Marine Corps, was stationed at Camp Lejeune. So Marine Corps, the Marine Corps, I'm biased toward them. Uh, then you have the Air Force, then you have the Navy and the Coast Guard, and uh, you have all these other branches. Now there's always friendly competition between the branches, and of course the, the best is the Marine Corps. Uh, that is a fact because if it was not true, I would not yell on my brother-in-law and my father-in-law. However, however, there are superiors and inferiors. That is a fact in life. Um, right now, in our culture, we're trying to debate the norm. This is an application. The debating of the norm is that there are better than others in life. Now, better than others in life does not mean this person is inferior in the sense that they are worth less. They're not worth as much. So make this distinction in your mind. When someone is inferior, it doesn't mean it's worth less than this. But it does mean there's a difference. Now, I like to paint, I like to house paint, I like to do those kind of things. I like to use different varnishes and coverings and things. Uh, I like to work with wood. I'm not good like Francis, but um, I like to apply things to wood. There are different grades of paint. There's really expensive paint, Sherwin-Williams. $80 a gallon, $110 a gallon. Then you have Home Depot paint, $45 a gallon, which is kind of expensive. $28 a gallon, Glidden. Walmart, the worst paint to buy is Walmart. It is inferior. It's like painting with milk. 
You can't paint with milk. It just runs. And so there is different qualities. And so when we say, when I say that God is the superior, I mean that he is the superior. He is the almighty. And when I say man is inferior, he is inferior to God. But man to man, you have to be kind of careful about this to not say I'm better than you because of my race. Yeah. Yeah, be careful about that. Because if that was true, I would say the Chinese race is superior than every other race. Why would I say that? Well, where'd fireworks come from? Where'd gunpowder come from? Okay, where'd the written alphabet come from? Well, not from us, but I'm sure we had a lot of saints and a lot of things. We go back so many hundreds and uh, thousands of years. I'm just kind of kidding about that book. But I'm saying in life, there are superiors and there are inferiors, and that's not wrong. Do not be offended when God says, and when I say to you that the superior tells the inferior what to do. God dictates the terms of this contract and he's not taking no for an answer. Now, how, how dare God say like that? How dare, how dare God talk like that? Do what I say or else. Essentially, that's what he's saying over here. Do what I say. How dare a man say to another man? Well, there is a hierarchy in society and in certain cultures. And in certain cultures, you do not disobey your superior because if you do, there's a harsh penalty. I know that is true, and you know that is true too. But in this case, the covenant that God makes, it is all Him. He makes the contract. He makes the terms of the contract. He tells the subordinate, just do what I want you to do. Just be what I want you to be. And that's it. So He will give them commandments. He'll give them covenant, a covenant. And um, this is what this chapter is leading into, all right? So if you don't like rules, you may not like this chapter. <laughs> if you don't like someone telling you, do not do this. If you don't like someone telling you that is wrong, then you're in the wrong chapter. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 where it's about the love chapter. And it seems to be so permissive and so soft and so soothing. And it is. But the whole Bible in this context tells us that there is a God in heaven who is not just a Santa Claus. Just not just, just a cotton candy just all sweet you know what God is God is the Almighty and he has the right to tell his people the Jews what he expects from them he delivered them and he mentions in this chapter why he has the authority because he delivered them from bondage and the Christian spiritually speaking the Christian who has been delivered from bondage he then has a different obligation than he used to have before now that he's been delivered from the bondage of sin then he has a new master, he has a new Lord. Before, he was his own Lord. You ever met people that think that they are the ultimate it? I know some professional athletes who think they're the ultimate it. It reflects on how they talk and how they carry themselves. Now, I do like sports and I respect the skills, but I don't like the attitude that athletes have as if it's because of them that they have this great attitude, uh, great uh, skill. Uh, LeBron James is my favorite target over here. I don't know if you like him or not, but I kind of don't like the man because of his ego. He thinks he has the right to say things politically and morally and that it's all okay. Uh, Magic Johnson, my generation, or before, uh, in the 80s, he was the great star of the NBA. And Magic Johnson has some more views that's really not the kind of views that a Christian should adopt or admire. And, uh, but he speaks as if he's the authority for the world. Well, that's his opinion. Everyone has opinions, but who has the final say so? Where does the buck stop? Where does the buck stop? If the buck doesn't stop somewhere, everyone's got a buck. Everyone's got an opinion. Who is right? I'm right because I spoke the loudest. That's how, that's how mobs work. Speak the loudest, you get the authority. Um, 
I'm right because I thought it first. No, 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 no. There has to be what is right and what is wrong. And there's an in-between. But ultimately, God said this, the inferior says this, who is right? Who has sway over your decisions? Who has sway over your life? The ultimate authority or what you want to do? Now, back in the 1960s, not the 1860s, back in the 1960s, that's my generation, that's my decade, 1960 to 1970, that's 10 long years of free love and free drugs and free do whatever you want to do. And that was expressed in the long hair, that was expressed in the type of music that was done in that decade. Now, whatever you think, that decade was a decade of rebellion against the establishment. And in schools and in music, they always preached, they did preach against parental authority. They preached against police authority. They were called pigs. Remember that? They were called pigs. You folks are old enough to know that. Remember that? They were called pigs. I never called a cop a pig. I called him a cop. I never called him an officer, but I respected the badge and the uniform because I knew that if I transgressed or broke the law, I deserved to get busted if I got caught. I didn't do too many bad things. I just stole candy from Foodland and still come at books from the drugstore, that's all. They're just, you know, small kind of crimes, but I got busted. Well, I was so embarrassed, my parents were embarrassed, but I deserved to get busted because I broke the law. Now, this decade was lawlessness. The Hebrew people, delivered from bondage, now free people, still had within them, I wanna do what I wanna do. So God says, I know you. Oh, by the way, does God know your heart? That's a sincere question. Does God know your heart? Does God know what you're thinking about? That's really almost a silly question to ask. Does God know what's in your heart? Does anyone else really know? No. How could we know? You know the Bible says, man looks on the outward appearance, God looks in the heart. That is to say, the Almighty God who gave the covenant, I know what's in man. His people, his peculiar people. And he says, I need to give them some, some laws, some rules, some regulations, some standards to comply with because without these laws and standards from me, they're gonna go berserk. So it's for their benefit, their good. So the covenant uh, would eventually be ratified in chapter 24 of this book. And so you wanna know so far that the superior gives the inferior laws to go by, okay? All right, so that's where we are. And so before the law was given, the people had to be uh, meeting some conditions. They had to be sanctified, set apart, uh, stay away from the mountain. Uh, only two people are gonna go up here. You folks stay back here. It's like there's an invisible wall, a barrier. It wasn't built, but he says, don't go to a certain point. You can only go so far, but you can't go any further. It's like a wall. Our wall's good. Our barrier's good. Do people in our world, in the free world, have barriers and walls around their property? Do they live in gated communities? Why? Well, if you ever went down to uh, parts of Los Angeles, if you went down to uh, Alameda County in uh, uh, Oakland, you find out why people have gated communities. Because there are people around don't respect people's property and rights, and they will take what's not theirs because they can. So you have gated communities, you have security. Over on this island, you have at military installations, you have gated communities. You have to go through the guard shack. 
Now, what if I said to you, you know what? I'm a pastor, I'm a Christian. I can do what I want. I drive to go to Hickam. They stop me. They all stop you, you know. They should stop you. And uh, they'll ask for certain documents. If I don't have it, and I say, I just want to go pick up somebody for church. I can't do that. I can't do that. They're going to block me out. They're going to strip me. Rightfully so. What if I said, you know, I don't care what you say, young man. How old are you? You know how old I am? Look at me. You know how old I am? If I said this to the girl, what would he do to me? <laughs> he put his hand in his fist right here. And he'll say, all right, I got a problem with this, this local guy. He thinks he can do anything he wants to. And uh, I need backup right now. And I say, you dare stop me. I take off. What's going to happen to me? Tell me. It's going to be bad trouble for me, not for them. I just need to comply to the rules. And so there are some rules that God gave to them. Don't come up to the mountain. Only two men will come up. He says, wash your clothes. A good thing. Wash your clothes. He says uh, in chapter 19, verses 12 through 15, wash your clothes. Don't touch the edge of the mountain. And then it says something very strange. He says, don't touch your wives, you men who are married. Don't touch your wives. What? That's in verse number 15. And he said to the people, be ready again the third day and not uh, come not at your wives. You know what that's about? Well, you know what that's about if you're an adult. That means don't have normal relationships with your wife. Don't have intimacy with your wife. Why? Is it wrong? No. Why does he say that? Because on this particular third day, particular third day, it is to make the strong statement that I'm God, I'm holy, you're inferior, you're not holy. So separate yourself from any kind of worldly things before I can come down. He's making a point. You're not God. I'm God. That's what he's saying. That's all he's saying. That's all he's saying. He's making a strong statement. On this day, on this morning, I'm going to come down. And I want you to be a certain way. Now, let me take that thought and tell you this. All right, this is a simple little thing about heaven. Now, I don't know if you believe in heaven or not, but the Bible says, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. So heaven's a good place. John 14, 1 through 6, all right? Heaven's a real place. Okay, if heaven's a real place, who made heaven? I'm going to answer for you. God made heaven. So it is God's heaven. It is God's property. It is God's domain. It is God's creation. It is where God dwells. Who goes to heaven? Who goes to heaven? Does everyone go to heaven? Does everyone go to heaven? Well, does everyone go up to the mountain? Does everyone go up to the mountain? No. No. Only these two guys. And then only him after a while. That is to remind us that in the New Testament, not everyone goes to God's heaven. Because not everyone is fit to go to God's heaven. For a man to be fit to go to God's heaven, he told them to be sanctified. You must be S-A-B-E-D. You must be saved. You must be born again to be fit to go to God's heaven. So heaven, is quote, has gates. And I always say that to say that if there are gated communities where you must have access to go in as a guest or as a resident, you also must have spiritual access to God's home called heaven by knowing Christ as your Savior. And that's how everything falls off. This is what the teaching all means. This is what the history means. This is what the doctrine means. This is what the prophecy means. 
you must personally recognize yourself as one who needs Christ as Savior. And when you accept him by faith, you'll be fit for heaven because you'll be born again. And that is what this all comes down to. And so wash your clothes, be clean, uh, stay from the mountain, some warnings. And so God is very holy, much more than we can imagine. Now, in the, in the Old Covenant, this is the Old Covenant, and then this is the New Covenant, right there. This is the New Covenant. So, in the Old Covenant, I'll just make a short contrast here. I'll give a little list, and I'll read it to you so I can get it right. In the Old Covenant, Sinai, Mount Sinai, speaks about fear and terror. Zion, or we say Calvary, Jerusalem, it's about love and forgiveness. Sinai is a dry desert. Zion, Jerusalem, Calvary, is a city of the living God. Sinai is about fear, power, and is earthly. Mount Zion is heavenly and spiritual. At Sinai, only Moses can meet with God, but in the spiritual Zion, everyone can come to God through Christ. At Sinai, Moses is the mediator, the go-between between man and God. And at Zion, Jesus Christ is the go-between between God and man. Pretty interesting. Um, at Sinai, the Old Covenant will be ratified in chapter 24 by the blood of animals to seal it. But at our spiritual Zion is ratified by the blood of God's Son who gave His life for us. Uh, the barrier at Sinai is exclusion, exclusion uh, excluding people from entering and coming up to. Zion is all about invitation, come. Come. The cross is about come, come, come. I invite you to come. Now, Sinai is all about the law, and Zion is all about God's grace. Now, chapter 20 of Exodus, chapter 20. Those are some differences between Zion and Mount Sinai. Chapter 20, verse number 1. And God spake all these words, saying, Right away, at the very beginning, at the very beginning, uh, there's a real point made by the Lord that He is the one who speaks these words. When He says the commandments in chapter 20, the Ten Commandments and the other commandments, really, beginning at verse number 1, God spake all these words. And Moses, okay, received it. So God spake these words. The important thing to know from verse number one is that God gave the words of the law. So when Moses came down from the mountain, Moses came down from the mountain. Here is Moses. He has something that he's carrying. He's coming down from the mountain. Eventually, he's coming down. He has in his arms two tables of stone. When he comes down, he's coming out with words that are not his words. He's coming out with words that are God's words. And so you want to remember this, that the words of God were given to him, the law. And uh, he spake all these words saying, now... I will tell you this to make a point and to show a contrast that a lot of people in this world have inspiration to write songs, to create music, to do art, to do other things. They're inspired by something. Something in their life, something that they think about just inspired them. They can't speak. They just got to write. got to get there. And people can write songs. And you do have to respect the ability that people have 
to create music and to create songs. Uh, and some of them are so ingenious. Now here's one I want to recite to you. I wouldn't sing it because I'd chase you out of church. But musicians can inspire and they can write some things. When shadows fall and the night covers all, there are things that my eyes cannot see. I never fear for the Savior's near. My Lord abides with me. How can I fear? Jesus is near. He ever watches over me. Words all cease. He gives me peace. How can I fear with Jesus? And that's inspirational. That is a great lyric. That's a great song written by a contemporary. When I'm alone and I face the unknown and I fear what the future may be. Now, you know, that is a, this song is really appear, appealing to maybe children, teenagers. It can also appear to adults too. You know, adults get fearful when they're alone, you're away from home, scared. Don't tell me you're never afraid. Don't tell me you're so brave that you don't get afraid of anything. I'm afraid of sharks. I'm afraid of killer whales that eat sharks. I'm afraid of polar bears. They just live to eat flesh. That's why I never go to Alaska. Well, they're not in Alaska, but uh, they, they're posed. But uh, there are some moments in life when you are terrified because you're all on your own. You can't do anything for yourself. I can depend on the strength of my friend. He walks along with me. Jesus, my king, he controls everything. He is with me each night and each day. I trust my soul to the Savior's control. He drives all fears away. How can I fear? Jesus is near. He ever watches over me. Where is all cease? He gives me peace. How can I fear Jesus? That is inspiration. That is inspired. But that's not scripture. It's just a great gift that God has given to people. Now here's another song. It's a secular song. You might know this one. It's an old one. Fighting soldiers from the sky. Fearless men who jump and die. Men who mean just what they say. The bird men of the green beret. Now you say, well, why are you saying that? Because I'm making a point. Silver wings upon their chest. These are men America's best. 100 men will test today, but only three win the green beret. Trained to live off nature's land. Trained in combat hand to hand. Men who fight by night and day. Courage take, take, takes from the green beret. Back at home, a young wife waits. Her green beret has met his fate. He has died for those oppressed, leaving her this last request. Put silver wings up my son's chest, make him one of America's best. He'll be a man that I'll test one day, have him win the Green Beret. Now, all of this stuff is just inspirational stuff that people can do. When the Bible says in verse number one, and God spake all these words, saying, this is a statement to tell you that when you're about to read here in the Ten Commandments, it is not Moses' idea, I want to make some laws to make people mad. <laughs> oh, I want to come up with some law that says don't, 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 because I want people to hate me. This is not Moses' concoction. Moses did not go and fast for 24 hours and say, oh, I'm, oh, what can I come up with that'll make people really angry with me? He didn't need to do that because the people are already angry with him all the time. <laughs> Moses is such grief from the Hebrew people. I don't know why he didn't give up many years ago. But he didn't write this to make people mad at him. He says, this is what God says. Now, whether you accept it or not, <laughs> the fact is the Ten Commandments and the commandments of God came from God. We say it is the law of Moses only in the sense that he brought it down, okay? Only in that sense, not in the sense that he created it. This was written by Shakespeare. This is written by some great poet. Okay, true. This is some author who wrote, uh, it's their words. But when God says, God spake all these words, he is really reinforcing to us that God is the one who gave the words to Moses. He brought it down. I hope you get that real clear. And if you have an argument with the Ten Commandments, 
then really your argument is not with Moses or with a church, it's with the author of those words. Your fight is not with the man. All right, the first commandment. God spake all these words, saying, one, uh, verse two, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou should have no other gods before me. The first commandment is don't put other gods before me or ahead of me. Now that's the only rational conclusion. The only rational conclusion, after he says, I'm the Lord that brought you out, uh, why would anybody have something else besides God as their God? I'm the Lord thy God, verse 2, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Now, God, God says, look, I'm God. Remember this, I am the Lord thy God. I'm your God. I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. And it's like he's saying, did any other gods bring you out of Egypt? Did any other gods deliver you from the Red Sea? Did any other gods give you those ten plagues? Did any other god do that? And the answer always comes up good. No, 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 you're the only true God. Which would be the right logical thing to say because that is the truth. Uh, images. Don't make any graven images. Images. I brought them to the land of Egypt. Uh, and that's in verse number four. And so God begins by saying who he is. And the rest of the commandments all follow after that one truth. Verse number four. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images or image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Well, does that mean you can't paint something? You can't paint an animal? Does it mean you cannot make uh, something out of clay or pottery on the shape of a, a form of a man or animal? What is that all about? Thou shalt not make any graven images. Verse 4 likeness of anything that is in heaven above imaginary things like angels or saints or uh, spiritual whatever or that is in the earth beneath waters abound in the earth you know that he's saying up down around you don't make an image about something that i have made what is the problem here the problem is not that you can do artistically a rendering of a horse a horse painting or a sunset or a beat scene. He's not talking about that kind of stuff. He's just saying, don't make these things, verse five, thou shalt not bow down thyself to them. That's the problem. It is not admiring beauty. It's not It is not saying, oh, I wanna, I wanna recreate that. And that's not the problem. The problem is you bow down to it. Now, when you bow down to something that you make, now think about this. <laughs> the bowing down to something that you make with your hands. I like to paint, I like to draw. I think I can do some things pretty decently. And, uh, but uh, I would never have someone, oh, what a nice picture of the mountain. Oh, nice. And you bow down to that thing. That would be really wrong. That would not be the intent of me doing a little painting. To read a bow down and worse. No, no. It is to just say, wow, that's pretty nice. And that hopefully the thought will come, well, you know, God's a great creator. He's got such imagination, da, da, da. Okay, so worship God, not, not something that God made. Here's the illogical reasoning about making images and things uh, that you bow down to. So the, the problem is bowing down to something that is man-made. Uh, how can man who is inferior bow down to something that is even more inferior? Now think about this. You make something with your hands. Without you making it, that thing is not made. But you make something in a form, in a shape. And then you bow down to that, you pray to that, you ask that thing to help you because you got problems that you're gonna to pray to this thing to ask for some help and some guidance. 
How is it possible for you to, to make something inferior to you and you pray to it for help? It is very logical. I hope you understand that. Idolatry is very wrong, not because it offends God, because it offends God to the place where, why are you a, God, a, bad, a man that I made with a brain that can really think, and you make something that is inferior to you, because without you, this would not be made, and you're praying to this for help? I don't understand that. He says, I'm the one that can help you. So don't make things, don't, don't create things that you bow down to and pray to. That's the problem. Now, who can help you? Well, here's who can help you. Turn to Isaiah 59. Turn in the Old Testament to Isaiah 59 in Jeremiah 33. Isaiah chapter 59 and verse number 1. Here's a good scripture to remind you that the inferior cannot pray to an inferior to get help. The inferior cannot help someone else who's superior to that inferior. The inferior must pray to the superior. Okay, Isaiah 59, verse number one. Behold, the Lord's hand, the Lord's hand is not shortened. Now you're reading a verse here that is an expression about God having a hand, and then it says, uh, it's not shortened that it cannot save, neither is his ear heavy. That they cannot hear. Now, listen, listen to this part. Let me let me say something here. God is not a man, because the Bible says God is a spirit. Okay? But he is described here as a man. God, God, the Lord's hand. The Lord's hand. What is a hand for? What is an arm for? Okay, well, it's to reach out. The Lord's hand is not shortened, it's not limited. His not, hand's not limited. That it cannot save. Okay, so the situation here is a man is drowning or uh, facing death and he's crying out for help and he says help he calls to his idol idol says uh i can't do anything about that well i made you the idol says i'm the man says i made you idol says sorry but i can't answer you I, my hands are just limited to this i have tyrannosaurus or i have t-rex hands that's kind of useless t-rex you know i can maybe do little touching my keypad like that but that's about all i can do and uh I have ears. You made me to have ears, the forms of ears, but it, it cannot do anything. It's too heavy. It's it's limited. So God says, look, I have hands that are not limited. I have ears that are not stopped up. What does that mean? So his hand can reach anywhere. His ears can hear everything. And he says, I'm the superior. Don't bow down to the inferior. Inferiors, bow down to me. Have no other gods beside me. Don't make a graven image to things. Bow down to me. And the Bible says, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. We don't need idols to worship God. We don't need these aids or helps to worship God. We pray directly from our heart to God. We can be anywhere and communicate with God because he's a spiritual being. So the Lord's hand is not shortened. I'm happy about that, aren't you? Let me tell you a story about the Lord's hand is not shortened. He can save like that. Now, you might think, well, that, I don't need, okay, well, let me tell you this. I retired, this is an old story, it's a true story, and a retired pastor and his wife were crossing a train track, and uh, you never want to have a car stall for some reason, and cars can go funny on you, you think you want to blink for strange reasons. They stall on the track. 
Okay, that's a terrifying scene to stall on a train track because ultimately a train's gonna come by. Well, the worst thing happens, the train comes by, the light's shown, and uh, the engineer sees that, so he's doing it. The car cannot turn over. The car that he strikes, and his wife is pushing out of him, saying, honey, start the car. Start. He said, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying. And he steps in the gas, and, and he's just going, rah, 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 rah. You know that awful sound? Rah, 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 rah. And, oh, and she says, oh, God, help. And when she says, oh, God, help, the car started, and the car was, this was a standard car. The car jumped like that into first gear, right across the track like that now you say that's a true story that's a true story you just don't know about these things because whoever reports these things they were saved they were saved by inches you know have you ever seen a, a train cross a track the track bounces it bounces I've seen it bounce and that train went by and that track has bounced like that and the husband and wife they're saying, thank you, God, for answering prayer. They, they didn't say anything fancy. They just prayed from their heart. The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. Neither is it heavy that it cannot hear. It's a good thing God has good good 2020 hearing. <laughs> uh, I think about World War II. I like World War II things, and I like to read about the different elements of the war, Pacific and European theater. And, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of young men that um, were pretty cocky when they left New York City or other parts, not so much in the Midwest, not so much in the South, because they're raised with some kind of uh, background information about the Bible and so on like that. That's how the parents taught them, but uh, upstate, that kind of thing. Most of them pretty arrogant, self-made men, I didn't mind, kind of thing. And a lot of them got into combat. When they got into combat and saw their buddies get shot in the head, it changed your thinking. And uh, there are some movies that portray the, the horrors of war and it's all good because it makes you realize how inferior you are and how much God needs to have, uh, needs to be the one to help you. And so here's another one, Jeremiah 33.3. This is about um, calling upon the one who can help. Jeremiah 33.3. The inferior that makes an object to pray to, it doesn't make any sense. But praying to the superior does make a lot of sense. Jeremiah 33.3. Here's a verse that tells us that God can do what you cannot do. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Jeremiah 33. Call unto me, pray, call unto me, and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Why? Because his hands are not limited. His power is not limited. So the Almighty God, he can do the things for his children that no idol can do it. And that's why he says, don't bow down to idols. <clears throat> All right, uh, let's go one more here. He says in uh, verse number four, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Verse five, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Now, in the 1980s, there was a wave of, uh, there was a, a trend, I would say, of people writing books about generational curses. Generational curses. The idea behind generational curses in the 1980s was because your great-grandparents were cursed, 
then it'll pass down to four generations. And what you need to, and this is the, the reason why they say, okay, this is why my dad was so bad. This is why my, our kids were so bad and the grandkids were so bad because their great-grandfather was so, you know, like that. Four, that's what they thought from this verse over here. Is that what it is saying? Look at it again. Verse 5, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. So it is, there's a problem for those who hate God. They're the ones who are not blessed. They're the ones who are actually, quote, cursed, or they're going to have a struggle or hard time left. The Proverbs say this about people who hate God. The way of transgressors is hard. Hard life. It's not because of a curse. It's not because of someone who did something four generations ago and you have a hard time. It's not that at all. And so it is about responsibility. It is about someone being punished in this generation, in this generation, and then the children, if they disobey God, they're punished too. And if their kids disobey God, they're punished too. And if they disobey God, they're punished too. It's going down like that. So there's responsibility involved here, reaping what you sow. Reaping what you sow. Um, if a generation, is, um, a generation can be doomed to repeat the sins of previous generations uh, because they have no choice, no, they all have a choice. Everyone has a choice. Everyone can make decisions about something. As a matter of fact, here's, here's the problem as the Bible explains it. Sinful thinking leads to sinful actions. Sinful actions leads to bad consequences, okay? That's what happens. So let's say, let's put it like this. A father who's an alcoholic, a father who's doing drugs. Well, that's obvious to his children. Their kids raised, are, are growing up watching their dad do that. What's the, what's the tendency for the children? Either to hate it or to get used to it. If they get used to it, they then continue the dad's habit. It's not because they're cursed. It's because the dad had a bad example. The dad is doing something wrong. Didn't care about what the kids thought. And he's passed on something that he's doing to them. They think it's normal. It's normalized. And then they get married. They get kids. They're doing the drugs. And then from the very beginning, they do the drugs. I met, I met a guy. He wasn't doing drugs, but he was drinking a lot of beer. And uh, there was a big party of families, relatives, and so on. And a grandmother was giving a nephew, a baby nephew, six months old, beer in the milk in the bottle now that was going to rub with a taste for beer it's not because he's cursed it's because some jerk put beer in his bottle of milk do you understand how this thing passes on it's not because you're cursed over here therefore you're doomed without any choice no bad choice bad action bad consequences bad choice uh, bad consequences, same thing. This can go into more than just four generations. But everyone can stop. Each one can stop. No one is doomed to continue what this one did. I hope you understand that. But the 80s were, okay, we need, books were about, okay, we need to have a prayer meeting. Welcome to this prayer meeting. We're going to lay hands on this guy and cast out this curse and break the curse. That's not what this is about. Be careful of people who tell you we need to get together and pray and get the curse off of you. You're, you're doing this because you've got bad luck because, and you are, because you're cursed. 
Exodus tells us so. Exodus doesn't tell us so. Right. This is why people hate God. Yeah. Well, if they hate God, they better stop hating God. Responsibility comes down to the individual. Uh, here's a man named Prentice Henderson. I'll stop here. He lived through the Great Depression, fought World War II, did not retire until he was in the mid-70s. He taught a Sunday class of seven great boys for 30 years in a church, in a Baptist church. His philosophy of life was this, simply, I choose to be happy. Because he had that philosophy of life, a very simple one, his daughter testified this. He was always positive. And she said, my dad influenced many, many people, many, many generations because he chose to be happy. You know what that's about? One person chooses to live a certain way, is picked up by another person, they choose to live a certain way, ba 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 ba. See? And so that was a positive effect. And then you have uh, boys in Hawaii, uh, the Sua family. All seven boys went to prison. All seven boys went to prison. Most of them were in prison simultaneously. Over at Halab, right here. The Sua boys. Haven't heard about them for a long time, but they all went to prison. One after the other. Generation of curse? No. He did wrong. 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 Seven of them did wrong. Not because of a curse. They were not, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna rob the bank, I'm gonna rob cell, so, uh, I can't help. No, no, it was a choice that they made. And so the breaking of the problem is to repent of sin. Repent of sin. Get right with God is what we say. Now here's how you express get right with God. In the South, they say this. Not get right, they say get right. So when a man gets right with God, he takes care of the sin problem. And until a person takes care of the sin problem, problems will come in his life. Can't blame anybody else. And so each generation reaps what they sow. If they hate God, they will reap what they sow. If they love God, they reap what they sow. And he rewards or blesses, uh, he rewards, blesses, or punishes accordingly. I don't know about you, but I choose to be on the side that God blesses, all right? I choose that side. To me, it doesn't matter what anybody says over here. It could be a whole gang of people say this, but if it's all wrong, I'm going to say, well, your choice is up to you, but I wish you would consider what God says about this, because God would rather bless than curse, you know that? He'd rather help you than fight against you, and you don't want to fight against God, because you're going to lose. Uh, I'll, I'll stop with this part, and I'll, I'll continue on the Ten Commandments just a bit next week. I want to cover the ten of them. But here's something I want to leave with you uh, for Sunday school. Every man has pride. Pride is not wrong. Pride is a good thing if pride pushes you to do the best that you can do, whatever it is, okay? There's nothing wrong with that. Pride in a job well done is a great thing. People don't have pride in what they do, they do a lousy job about things. People don't have self-respect, they do a lousy job. You don't want those people working for you. They will not be good employees. They'll never be the employer. Hardly. So pride is a good thing. But pride becomes bad when it becomes defiant. When pride becomes defiant, that's when there's a problem. For a man to say, I don't care what anybody says, you got a problem. For a man to say, oh, cops over here, I don't care. Cops, who cares about the cops? Bad attitude to have, bad problem. Problem's going to come. Authority, just because I'm not way up there doesn't mean I don't have a brain. Well, no one's talking about that. But they have an arrogance, they have a, 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 an attitude that 
No one's going to tell me what to do. That's bad pride. To say, I'm not going to obey any laws, that's bad pride. I am my own man. Yeah, you're a stupid man. You're a stupid man. You really are. To think that no one's going to tell you what to do. That kind of pride leads to a man to all kinds of trouble in his life. I just want to tell you, in love, <laughs> that it's better to do what the Bible says than to go your own way and find out the hard way. Here's a good saying. I want to end with this one. Uh, experience is the best teacher, but for a fool, it's the only teacher. That's about learning the hard way. I know people, you know people. If you live a long time, you know people, all right? I live a long time. I live a long time. Over half a century. That's a long time. I live a long time. I've learned some things from the mistakes of other people. There are some things I will never do because I've seen what happened to that guy and that guy and that guy and that guy and that. And that. I've seen it happen firsthand or thirdhand or secondhand. I've learned lessons about other people's mistakes. I'm not going there. I'm not going there. You know why I'm not going there? Because I want to live. I want to live to be 200 years old. <laughs> or half that. Wait, no, no. Yeah, half that. I would pretty good live 100 years old. Why cut it short unnecessarily? But there are consequences to sin. It may not catch up with you now. It's going to catch up with you. It follows you. Last one, okay? Really, last one. Finally, my brethren. One year, I did not pay taxes. Listen to this. One year that I was young, I was single, I was stupid. My employer did not give me any instructions about paying taxes. We were called volunteers. Therefore, we don't have to be subject to income tax. This is back in the early 70s. I thought, well, this is great. Get a paycheck from this ministry, and uh, I keep it all. Wow, this is nice. <laughs> Mistake. First tax year of that employment, no problem. No letters from the IRS. Second year, no problem. Third year, da 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 da, -da. Here comes the bad news. A letter, return address, IRS. When you get a letter from the IRS, it's kind of terrifying. <laughs> Open the letter, it's a general letter. Da-da, uh, you owe and you did not pay, da, -da. okay. Uh, pay, catch up, ignore the letter. Next letter comes three months later. A little bit more stern. Next order come. All right, come down to the federal building. And your agent is Mr. Conte. C-O-N-T, Mr. Conte, Mr. John Conte. I remember Mr. John Conte. Mr. John Conte, IRS agent. I have to go down to the federal building, federal building, and show the letter. He comes and sits down with me in his suit, in his, in his, uh, and I'm sitting there like this with shorts on and slippers. <coughs> what a scene. And he says, now, Mr. Ching, according to our records, you did not file income tax. I said, right. Why not? I said, well, I was told you didn't have to. Well, you have to. I said, I know, but I was just doing what I was told. Well, you were told wrong. Now, you must pay what you owe plus interest plus penalties. Now, ladies and gentlemen, to pay what you owe plus interest plus penalties is a big load. He finally caught up. I had to pay by installment. And the guy finally knew I was just an ignorant guy doing censored ignorance work. He said, okay, I don't think you are doing this deliberately. I think you were just, um, you were told and so I was off the hook as far as any kind of, but I was still liable for the tax 
penalty, all right? Everything else too. Had to pay it off, took me several years to pay it off. <sighs> you never get away. And you never get away from what the Bible says. The wages of sin is death. So the out of that one is the gift of God. So that's the book of Exodus in chapter 19 and chapter 20. So far, we're not done. We're going to continue to see what the Bible says about the Ten Commandments. There are several thou shalt nots. And they are not for your hurt, they're for your good. One last thing. One last thing. I know I've said that 15 times. The Babylonians had a code of law called the Code of Hammurabi. It was written um, about 300 years B.C. before Moses. 17th, 17th, 18th century B.C. Moses written in the um, 1500s, 1500s B.C. So after the Code of Hammurabi, some people claim that Moses plagiarized the Code of Hammurabi. No, he didn't plagiarize it. Joe Biden plagiarized it, but not Moses. And so... Um, uh, they both have some similarities, but it's because all cultures have some sense of moral responsibility. Thou shalt not steal, and if you commit murder, you're going to have to die, capital punishment. That's all there, too. But uh, this is God's law, because the Bible says in chapter 20, God spake these words. Okay? So it's God's words. All right? So let's uh, be smart and do what God says. All right? We're going to stop. Take a break. <laughs>